Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Episode 11, Once More Unto the Breach. By late 1838, General John Colborne, the man some were coming to call the Vieux Brulot, the old firebrand, had seen off more than his fair share of governors. There was Sir Bond Head from Upper Canada. He'd left in mid-1838 while Colborne remained. Then there was Lord Gosford in Lower Canada, the great conciliator who hadn't been able to prevent the 1837 uprisings. He'd left earlier in 1838. Still, Colborne remained. And here he was again on November 1st, 1838, seeing off another governor. This time, the man leaving was Lord Durham. Turns out, Durham's novel idea of giving amnesty to most of the Lower Canadian prisoners while exiling eight leaders and then banishing 16 more on pain of death, well, that hadn't gone down too well with his superiors in the British government. The British Empire valued procedure and legal nicety, and Durham's plan, while politically quite smart, was not technically legal. Durham had no control over Bermuda, so how could he dare to exile prisoners to that colony? And as for assigning the death penalty on men suspected of treason but not yet tried for it, that simply wasn't done. So the government back in Britain had revoked Durham's acts. And then when Durham learned of this, not through the courtesy of official dispatch, but simply by reading about it in a New York newspaper that had made its way to Lower Canada, well, this was too much for Durham. The embarrassment, the lack of support, it offended his dignity. So he promptly defended himself by publishing the official papers related to the incident and then just as promptly resigned. This is why General Colborne good old Constant Colborne, was standing on a cold pier in Quebec City on November 1st, 1838, and seeing another ship and another governor leave the port. The name of the ship was too apt, the Inconstant. But this is also why General Colborne was far away from the action from Montreal and the centers of rebellious support when rebellion broke out again in the colony that autumn almost as if the rebels had planned it that way. With the governor fleeing back across the ocean and the great General Colborne out of town, maybe, just maybe, they might have a chance this time. This week we finally reach the end of the road. Rebellion breaks out again in Upper and Lower Canada. The exiled leaders take one more stab at overthrowing British authority in the Americas. The year before, everything had been out in the open. Public meetings and declarations, the Sons of Liberty marching in the streets after Mass on Sundays. That hadn't worked. This time, they try concealment and secret organization. It was worth a try. The Patriot who wanted to keep up the fight needed to overcome difficult obstacles. For one, they depended on American help, but in March 1838, the American government had passed a new neutrality law, this one much more rigorous than the previous one. 
the Americans knew that many of their citizens sided with the Patriot and wanted to do everything they could to deter over-enthusiastic Americans from dragging the United States into a conflict with the British that the government just didn't want. What's more, Lord Durham's general amnesty had removed the largest symbol of ongoing resentment against British rule in Lower Canada. The exiles sent off to Bermuda certainly earned much sympathy, but even their sworn statements had read that they were accepting their own fate in order to keep the country peaceful. And then there was the matter of military reinforcements. Since the previous autumn, Colborne had been gathering even more troops into the Canadas, just in case. There were more than 4,000 troops in Lower Canada and 3,000 regulars in Upper Canada, including a number right along the border, notably the Glengarry Highlanders who were ready to be called out. By stationing significant number of troops in the colony, the British wanted to make it clear that they were not ready to relinquish control of the Canadas. The man with the plan to overcome all of these obstacles was Robert Nelson. Nelson hadn't been at the Middlebury, Vermont meeting where the Patriot leaders had divided on strategy. But when he arrived in the United States, he immediately sided with and then took command of the more radical faction. If Papineau and others were unwilling to step up, so be it. Nelson and others were prepared to act on their own. They had done so back in February in the botched border raid where Nelson and Cote had read out their Declaration of Independence and then immediately fled back across the border. That hadn't worked out so well, so it was time to try something new. And how were they going to wage rebellion this time around? Well, they were going to try the mid-19th century magic of Freemasonry, or something like it anyway. 19th century society was replete with secret fraternal organizations. The most famous was the Freemasons, so associated with liberal revolution already. Groups of men would gather themselves into lodges with secret rituals, handshakes, and passwords. This could be innocent. Often it was about fellowship, helping out others, giving death benefits to other members, and ensuring that they were buried or their widows taken care of. But it could also be political, And that was Nelson's plan. And so, in exile, the Patriot opted to create a secret fraternal order to carry on their plans of rebellion, the Frères Chasseurs, the Hunter's Lodges. Word was sent through trusted channels for Patriot to form Hunter's Lodges all across the Canadas and among the exile communities in America. Men were to be initiated into the secret society pledging to hold true to their brothers and to the cause. The lodge was divided hierarchically, with a a grand eagle at the very top, something like a major general, and then eagles under them, something like a colonel. Under each eagle came castors, or beavers, who commanded six raquette, snowshoes, who themselves commanded nine chasseurs, or hunters. And if you're thinking this sounds like one great big winter carnival stereotype of Canadianness, well, you're not wrong. Beavers, snowshoes, and hunters, all you need now is banam and you're on your way. In other words, the divisions of the hunters were very much rooted in the culture of the place, though 
it needs to be said that the Hunter's Lodges spread all through the exile community and there were a number of lodges amongst the English-speaking rebels in the United States. Uh, and these included large numbers of American citizens too. The Hunters were trying to escape the surveillance of Colborne and the network of spies that the British had established to root out any information about possible insurgent activity. The British government had sent 13 officials to Lower Canada to spread out across the colony and act as representatives of the government in the local areas. Added to this were the many paid informants who passed along information. Of course, the spying went both ways. The hunters themselves recruited employees of government offices and tried to ensure that they had people within the government who could pass on valuable information and act when the time came for the next uprising. This was a war after all, even though for the moment it was undeclared and taking place in secret. After a series of squabbles about when to act, the timing was set for the beginning of November 1838. The Upper Canadians were supposed to launch a preemptive series of raids about five days before any Lower Canadian action. But as so often happens in these large-scale uprisings, without good communications, the preemptive raids actually came after. Robert Nelson couldn't wait. He set the invasion for the weekend of Saturday, November 3rd and Sunday, November 4th. This had the benefit of Colborne being away in Quebec City, seeing off Lord Durham. While there, Colborne was to be invested as temporary governor until London sent someone else. The timing also took advantage of Sunday, always the best time to gather people together in Lower Canada with the local population gathering for Sunday Mass. The hunters could also hope to capture the local garrisons and officers at church where they would only have their sidearms and would be more vulnerable. The plan was for hunters to rouse themselves across the country in secret. Nelson would cross the border and set up headquarters at Napierville in the Richelieu area. They would capture the other towns in the valley and the armed British camps before moving on to Montreal. Other uprisings to the west of Montreal would cut off communications upriver to Upper Canada. Then, after capturing Montreal, they would move down the St. Lawrence, taking Trois-Rivières and finally Quebec City. Everything depended upon simultaneous timing and the rising of enough hunters across the colony to make it happen. Now, in some areas of the colony, the attack started well for the hunters. Just upriver from Montreal, a group of about 150 to 200 hunters launched themselves at a particularly unpopular target, the home of the English-speaking seigneur Edward Ellis at Beauharnois. Ellis's son was Durham's assistant, and he himself had just recently returned to the colony. In the middle of the night, on Saturday, November 3rd, Mrs. Ellis kept waking up, hearing dogs barking in the distance. Probably what she was hearing was the disturbance of hunters moving throughout the countryside, rousing other habitants to join them and take up arms. But it was a knock on the door in the middle of the night that roused the household. A loyalist came with reports that hundreds of hunters were approaching the manor. 
The loyalists took a contingent of about 12 men to see what was happening, but they all fled back to the house as the hunters ran towards the manor, firing their weapons. One man was injured, and so was another female servant. Inside the manor, Ellis initially tried to hide his wife and female relatives in a secret compartment, but the attack was too swift and defeat was too certain. They opened the doors to the hunters and, after a few tense moments, everyone was taken captive. Ellis and the men were sent off to another spot as prisoners. Mrs. Ellis stayed at home only to watch the next day as the large group of hunters hid in waiting at the approach of a ship to the dock. When the steamer set in at the manor's dock, the hunters launched from their hiding places, weapons in hand, and informed the captain that they were confiscating his ship. The hunters branched out from Beauharnois to several spots along the St. Lawrence and south and west of Montreal. All across the southern portion of the colony, hunters rose up that night. They gathered in groups of several hundred strong and scattered out across the vicinity to demand arms from the Loyalists in the area. The previous year, the Loyalists had risen up to defend the government and put down the rebellion. And in the Lake of Two Mountains area, it was the Loyalists who were especially blamed for the brutal burning of rebel homes. While in the past, the uprising had been done in the hope of building a larger coalition of Canadians who would overthrow the British. In this second uprising, a year later, there was much more of a tinge of score settling, of a kind of civil war, neighbour versus neighbour, and French versus English. In the Chateau Gay area, just west of where hunters had captured Ellis's manor at Beauharnois, the local insurgents believed their biggest threat to be the Mohawk settlement at Ganawage. Indigenous peoples, and especially the Mohawk, had a special relationship with the Crown. They saw themselves as military allies and bound by treaties with the British Crown. We saw how, in the previous year, the rebels in the Lake of Two Mountains area had hoped to disarm the indigenous people in their area, only to be outsmarted by a wily chief. This time, it was the turn of the Chateau Gay hunters to learn the dangers of trying to fool with the Mohawk. The hunters approached Ganawage early on Sunday morning, November 4th. They sent ahead a small number of men to negotiate. The hope was, as with the year before, to simply acquire the arms at Ganawage and get the Mohawk to assure them of their neutrality. The hunter's messenger told the Mohawk that they had more than 150 men, all armed, and with more hunters rising all around them. Now, some at Ganawage wanted to surrender, but others weren't so sure. In the end, a small group of Mohawk went back with the hunters to continue the negotiations, while the rest of the community ran to their homes to arm themselves. But the hunters were oblivious about the second part of the scheme. Instead, they captured the small group of Mohawk, but then were surprised when, a short while later, they were themselves surrounded by an even larger group of Mohawk who showed up armed and ready for action. The hunters were frightened and seem at this point to have just given up. The Mohawk then took them hostage and bound the men and ferried them up the river to the military base at Lachine. This wasn't a good sign of things to come. It seems that in much of the colony, many hunters had risen, but things had not always gone according to plan. Many were ready and willing to fight, 
but then they would flee at the first sign of militia or a regular military contingent. Everyone seemed to be waiting and depending upon the main force being gathered under Robert Nelson at Napierville. Would he be able to gather a huge force and enough munitions to turn this rebellion into a proper revolution? Robert Nelson, Cyril Cote, and several other Patriot leaders crossed the border on the night of Saturday, November 3rd, as planned, and set themselves up in Napierville, the top end of Lake Champlain, close to the Richelieu Valley and within striking distance of Montreal. Cote and a few others set about rousing support in the countryside, sending local hunters to Napierville to join the force there. All through the Sunday, November 4th, the hunter army grew. As many as two or 3,000 men came into the camp, offering to fight. Nelson, who was now, at least for the moment, President of the Republic of Canada, had brought with him from the United States two French émigrés with military experience. They set about organizing the volunteers into groups of about 50 men each. They militarized Napierville, as at St. Charles the year before setting up barricades around the town and trying to establish some kind of military discipline controlling who came and who went to try to prevent the flow of information about the uprising from drifting back to Colborne. And then the task was to secure munitions from across the border. Naperville is about 25 kilometers north of the American border. But Nelson couldn't be assured that loyalists living closer to the border wouldn't cause some trouble. And that is, of course, exactly what happened. Even as hunters started gathering at Napierville, loyalists near the border could tell what was happening and they gathered together to try to prevent the uprising. They learned that the insurgents were planning on bringing weapons up across the border and so began to set themselves up in a position to prevent just such an undertaking. On Monday, November 5th, the two sides had a brief skirmish, but both retreated. The loyalists sent word for more volunteers and urgently requested the help of the regular military. For the moment, Colborne wasn't sending troops hoping instead to gather a significant force before descending upon the insurgents. Until help arrived, the locals would need to rely on the volunteers they had near at hand. Back at Napierville, Nelson decided to make a move. He needed to get munitions for his forces gathered in Napierville, or else the whole operation would fail almost even before it began. A large force of hunters moved down to the border to try to bring in the needed munitions. On the Tuesday, the hunter force moved to the border and pushed its way past a group of volunteers who had gathered there to repulse them. But the volunteers merely retreated westward and called out for reinforcements. Overnight, these reinforcements arrived so that on the next day, when the hunters, having gathered their munitions, wanted to bring them back, they were faced with an armed border. The hunters tried to use their cannon that they had just brought across the border to ward off the attack, but it had little effect. The volunteers descended upon the hunters in three columns and overwhelmed them, but not before most of the hunters were able to escape back across the border. For Nelson, this was the worst news. Word of the setback spread around the camp, 
and nothing destroys a rebellion so much as an early defeat. The whole operation depended upon dreams and hope. The dreams were bright, but the hope was fading fast. How could a few volunteers stop the uprising? How could the Patriot be stopped short so soon? Men began to drift out of the camp. Finally, Nelson opted to make one last effort to secure the munitions. He gathered forces and headed towards a small village just north of where the volunteers were amassed at Odell Town near the border. He would make for one last push. Well, that is, he would if he could. As Nelson was riding about to gather the various contingents of the hunter troops, a small group of rebels who were having doubts captured him and tied him up. They set him on a horse and set off south, planning not to fight the loyalists, but to hand their general over and try to end the whole thing right then. On the way, though, they ran into another hunter force. These hunters had been warned that traitors were afoot, and so the plotters soon found themselves captured and Nelson set free. But even this wasn't quite the end of it. When they all arrived back at the army, some in the camp suggested that the whole thing had been a ruse and that Nelson had really been trying to flee. With tense words and a, a great deal of aplomb, Nelson was able to convince them that he wasn't trying to abscond. But the incident does say a lot about the frayed tempers and the doubts that were at this point barely under the surface in the hunter camp. Still, continue they did. Dividing the army into three columns, the hunters descended on the border at Odelltown to try and oust the loyalists, gather the much-needed munitions, and get moving on this whole rebellion business. At Odelltown, the loyalists had been waiting for just such a move, and when they saw the size of the force approaching them, they took up defensive positions. About 60 men holed themselves up inside a church while others huddled in defensive trenches in the rear. They positioned a cannon in front of the church, the one they'd captured from the hunters a few days earlier. And when the hunter force approached, the cannon blasted away at any coming from the road. But the whole scene was something like Saint Eustache the year earlier, only in reverse a defensive force hidden away in a church and a larger army attacking them. The hunters tried the same move as the British had the year before, attempting to encircle the volunteers. And Nelson urged his men to use the same tactics as the British had, setting fire to the church to force out the defenders. But he wasn't dealing with British regulars, and his now not-so-loyal troops wouldn't listen to him. Even more importantly, reinforcements arrived to support the loyalists at Odelltown and harass the hunters from another position. The fighting lasted for about two and a half hours, but the timely arrival of two separate contingents of loyalists was just too much for the hunters. It didn't help that partway through the battle, most of their leaders abandoned them yet again. No one noticed when Nelson slipped away, but slip away he did fleeing to the United States by a backwards route. So perhaps his doubters had been right all along. And other leaders did the same. Still, one of the French émigré commanders that Nelson had brought with him managed to get the hunters into an orderly retreat and they headed back to Napierville, defeated yet again by the rising of loyal volunteers near the border. 
these rebels could not catch a break. Everything fell apart after the second defeat at the border. The whole insurrection had depended upon a swell of activity rising up in district after district, all coming together to capture British forts south of Montreal and then moving on to Montreal itself. There had been some few successes, notably at Beauharnois, and certainly a great many hunters had risen up on November 3rd and 4th, ready for action. But that was just it. They were ready, but they weren't directing the action. This depended upon Nelson and Cote and the hunter leaders gathered at Napierville. If that force had been able to bring in enough munitions from the United States and then capture one of the British forts, then who knows? Anything was possible. But that isn't what happened. In fact, the insurgents couldn't even manage to bring ammunition and arms more than a few kilometers inside the border. And who stopped them? Just like the year before, it had been the loyalist militia, local farmers and artisans who heard rumors, saw their neighbors about to stir up trouble, and then put the defense of the colony into their own hands. In fact, at just this point, just as the few stragglers of hunters fled back to Napierville, is when General Colborne and the British regulars were about to get underway. Colborne had rushed back to Montreal with news of the attacks. He had only unclear reports of just how large a force he was to face, and he wanted to be absolutely certain he had enough men and munitions at his disposal to face it. By the 9th of November, he had amassed a force of just over 3,000 soldiers, and he set off in three different groupings to descend upon the insurgents in the Napierville area. But the locals knew he was coming, and with their recent defeats no doubt in their mind, and perhaps the fate of rebels the previous year as well, they fled in the night. When Colborne's forces arrived in Napierville on Saturday, November 10th, there was no one there to greet them. The hunters and the several thousand men that had been there only a few days earlier had all slipped away. Meanwhile, Colborne had ordered two contingents of Highlanders stationed in eastern Upper Canada, near present-day Cornwall, to move into Lower Canada and deal with the uprising around Beauharnois and Chateauguay. This they did with a great deal of enthusiasm, really perhaps too much enthusiasm. The Glengarry Highlanders arrived at Beauharnois to recapture the Ellis Seigneurial Manor, free the prisoners there, and send off the local insurgents. When the local hunters realized just how many Highlanders were coming at them, they fled. Though they did fire a few shots at the Highlanders, and one of these killed a soldier, the only British regular killed in the entire 1838 uprising in Lower Canada. Another group of Highlanders, these the Stormont Highlanders, joined forces with a group of local militia, and they worked their way through the region south and west of Montreal, where a number of hunters had established outposts. As they went, the Highlanders and volunteers burned insurgent homes and seemed to also have been more than a little keen to pillage from local hunter supporters. Certainly, the travels of the Highlanders through the region were remembered in Canadian lore as one of burning and pillaging. The fight had not gone well in Lower Canada. When the hunters emerged from secrecy, the fire they hoped to burn had turned out to be a damp one. 
easily squelched. But if Lower Canada had turned out to be a rather damp squib, this did not mean that the 1838 uprising was over yet. Even as Colborne was mopping up operations around Napierville and asserting authority over areas of Hunter's support, another flare of rebellion burst forth upriver. When a branch of Hunter's Lodge in upstate New York heard of Nelson's invasion in Lower Canada, they decided to take action themselves. The plan was to hijack an American steamer that plied the waters of the St. Lawrence. They boarded the steamer as regular passengers, just a group of men out for a river cruise. Then one hunter hired the steamer to tow two other schooners upriver. Unbeknownst to the steamer captain, these schooners, these other ships, were filled with hunters hiding below decks, as well as a huge trove of munitions, including cannon and modern rifles. That is, not muskets, but guns that were much more accurate and with a longer range. The hunters stayed below decks until the steamer pulled all of the hunters within range of Prescott, Upper Canada. There was a military base under construction at Prescott, and the plan was to capture the base and then use it as a base of operations to cut off traffic up and down the St. Lawrence. The first part of the plan went off without a hitch. The hunters boarded the steamer and it proceeded upriver, towing the two schooners. Then, at a designated time, the hunters came up on deck with weapons and proceeded to hijack the steamer. But there were, as there always are, divisions amongst the hunters. The closer they got to the invasion, some began to lose their nerve. In the end, it was decided to let the steamer itself land at Ogdensburg, New York, right across the river from Prescott, while the two schooners landed in Prescott for the invasion. But the tricky waters of the St. Lawrence proved too much for the inexperienced sailors. When they went to dock in the early hours of the morning of November 12th, the winds led them astray. Then, some militia noticed the odd behavior of the ships and opened fire. The schooners were forced to try to retreat to Ogdensburg in the dark, but they couldn't even manage that. Weighed down with munitions, they ended up stuck on a sand reef in the middle of the river, just over the American side. What followed was a kind of comedy of errors invasion where rowboats and scows were sent out from Ogdensburg to try to free the ships. The American town, or at least its waterfront, had essentially been taken over by the hunters at this point. By removing some heavy cannon and weapons onto a scow, the hunters managed to free one of the ships. This was the Charlotte, because we have to keep up the theme of lady ships that was such a part of the previous year rebel invasions. The schooner sailed upriver and got close enough to shore near a small settlement with a sturdily built lighthouse. The hunters began unloading themselves and their weapons. They occupied the lighthouse and the stone outbuildings and set up an encampment. Meanwhile, Smaller boats were moving back and forth across the river, taking information and men back and forth and trying to free the other ship. The only problem was this other ship was still filled with the bulk of the weapons and munitions. 
Now, the British in Prescott couldn't just let this go on, and a recently decked out civilian ship, the Experiment, set off to fight off any of the American vessels the minute they approached Canadian waters. There were a series of Navy entanglements over the next couple of days. The hunters managed to free the schooner, but they couldn't bring it to the aid of the hunters on the Canadian side. Then, an American naval ship reached Ogdensburg and insisted on keeping American neutrality. This meant that the couple of hundred hunters who had managed to make it to the Canadian side were pretty much on their own. A local militia force had gathered and set about trying to oust the hunters from their encampment. They were joined soon by a force of British regulars, the Glengarry Highlanders. For several days, the two sides fired at each other, sometimes with brutal force, picking off any who strayed too near, trying to burn each other out of outbuildings and generally making life difficult for the other side. And those new rifles the American hunters had brought certainly helped with this. It wasn't until five days later when the British were able to bring up several large cannon capable of destroying strong stone buildings that the tide really turned. The artillery proceeded to smash the outbuildings, forcing the hunters to flee or hide in the rubble. The militia and the regulars then rushed onto the hunter positions, forcing the hunters to eventually surrender, though not without serious casualties on both sides. When the hunters finally surrendered, it became clear just how misled they had been. The men were led by a colorful and romantic man named Colonel Niels von Schultz of Finnish descent. Von Schultz had fought for Polish independence against Russia and also in the French Legion. Then he left a wife in England to come to America to strike it rich with plans for a patent that would take salt from brine. He seems to have been caught up in the romanticism of the Canadian cause. He believed that the Canadians were living under the tyranny of British rule and were just waiting to be freed. The fact that he attacked the area of loyalist settlement around Prescott, perhaps one of the most loyal areas in all of Canada, shows just how little he actually knew. But he wasn't alone in his ignorance. Although some of the hunters were Canadians, the majority were Americans who seemed to think that all they needed to do was land in the Canadas and the thankful locals would flock to their cause, rising up to resist tyranny. Now, to his credit, von Schultz later realized his error. He was later tried and was defended by a young lawyer in Kingston by the name of John A. MacDonald. Yes, that John A. MacDonald. Schultz insisted on pleading guilty despite all attempts by his lawyer to get him to do otherwise. And in his will, Schultz left a portion of his estate to the widows of the British regulars who were killed in the encounter. Alas, he was a romantic, not a practical man. His desalination technique didn't work, and so there was no money in his estate for anyone. The battle at Prescott had ended by November 16th, but the attacks just moved westward. Each time, just as one hunter's lodge failed, just as one series of attacks were pushed back, another sprang up. Finally, in the far west of the colony at Windsor, the hunters attacked one more time and things were getting ugly. Animosity had grown with each encounter. Each side now had others to fight for, those who had died, who their enemies had killed. 
it wasn't just now about loyalty or liberation, it was also about vengeance. On the night of December 4th, near Windsor, about 160 hunters crossed the river. When they landed on the Canadian side, their general is said to have declared, the blood of our slaughtered countrymen cries aloud for revenge. The spirits of Lount and Matthews are yet unavenged. The murdered heroes of Prescott lie in an unhallowed grave in the land of tyranny. The manes of the ill-fated Caroline's crew can only be appeased by the blood of the murderers. Arouse then, soldiers of Canada. Let us avenge their wrongs. Let us march to victory or death. And ever, as we meet the tyrant foe, let our war cry be, Remember Prescott. So, yeah, it was going to get ugly. Their first action was to invade the shack of an escaped slave named William Miles. They insisted he should join them, and after all, why wouldn't he want to escape British tyranny? Well, uh, apparently he wasn't so keen. He cried out, God save the Queen, and for that he was shot. From there, the hunters moved into Windsor, burning a ship in the harbour. But their main target was the militia barracks. They set them alight, killing many inside in the flames and shooting two others who tried to escape. By this time, the local militia began to organize themselves to repel the attack. They ended up cornering the hunter force into an orchard on the outskirts of town. A devastating firefight ensued, and many of the hunters were killed before the rest either fled or surrendered. Now, the Canadian militia had been preparing for just such an attack. Spies within the hunter movement had sent word that something was coming. They just couldn't be sure exactly where or when. A Colonel John Prince was given command of the local militia, but by the time Prince arrived, most of the fighting was over. He just worked his way through the town to assess the devastation. By all accounts, Prince was not a happy man. You might say he lost it. Every time he encountered a prisoner under the escort of the militia, he ordered the militia to shoot and kill the man. This happened five times before saner heads prevailed and other militia officers refused to do any more killing. The prisoners may have been rebels and invaders, but to kill prisoners was just too much. Yet it shows just how far the temperature in the conflict had changed. This would be the final assault of the hunters. The attacks had started in the east and then moved westward. Each time, the locals pushed them back. But each time, the violence became just a little more intense. Tempers flared. If the conflict had gone any further, if there had been another year of attacks, you would have to think the reprisals would only have grown worse. As it was, the attack on Windsor ended the rebellions of 1837 and 1838. What had begun as a political campaign for constitutional reform, as a resistance movement against the Russell Resolutions in Lower Canada, against the Family Compact in Upper Canada, and had broken out in violence in the Richelieu Valley in the autumn of 1837, now came to its bitter end in Windsor, scattered among the dead bodies in an orchard, a wild and angry militia captain on the loose, wreaking vengeance on any unfortunate prisoners he could find. The fate of other prisoners was better than John Prince's victims, but still much worse than the year before. 
While the previous year, Lount and Matthews had been hanged as symbols of what rebellion could bring, and most others were sent either into exile or many set free. This wasn't going to be the case this time around. The outbreak of more violence the second year made loyalists much less open to charity. The trials of prisoners this time around led to many more convictions for treason and a good deal more executions. Prisoners were sent off into exile. A large contingent of lower Canadian patriot were sent all the way across the world to Van Diemen's land. And the plight of these refugees became a much talked about source of aggrievement in that colony. But it has to be said that overall, the fate of upper Canadian prisoners was much worse. In that colony, when the government could more readily depend upon the loyalty of its subjects, it was more apt to be harsh in its punishment. And these were only the official trials. Over the next several years, life was not easy for former reformers and those suspected of having been involved in or at least supportive of the rebellions. There was official punishment and then there was rough justice by the community, being ostracized, beaten up in the dark, losing your business, losing your career. And many reformers who hadn't supported the rebellion no doubt got caught up in the wide swath of retribution. It wasn't pretty, but it was ugly. But it was also over, and that's what mattered. Though no one could be entirely certain of this at the time, for another year and more, Hunter's Lodges continued to agitate across the American border. The exiled rebels continued to meet, admittedly more and more, in a desultory and hopeless fashion. For more than a year, from the autumn of 1837 to the autumn of 1838, rebellion had roiled the Canadas. More and more troops were stationed in towns and forts. Loyal citizens were called up to serve in the militia. Attack followed attack, and many more rumors spread of even more possible invasions. Life in the Canadas had been turned upside down. Only a generation earlier, the War of 1812 had riven the colony. And here again in the 1830s, violent upheaval tore apart the colony. Was this how it was to be? Would the Canadas always be subject to strife and conflict? Was there no political solution to the troubles of the Canadas? Well, we'll soon find out, but not just yet. Next day, it's time to figure out where we are. The rebellions are over, but so what? How should we make sense of what just happened? What was defeated? What was lost? And who won? We've been moving forward now for many episodes, and next week we step back and assess the state of British North America at the end of the rebellions. But don't worry. Just on the horizon is a whole other new panacea. There's Lord Durham's report to look forward to, the calls for a union of the Canadas, and the call for responsible government. What the heck does that mean? Well, we'll soon find out. Thanks so much for listening to 1867 and all that. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, why not tell a friend? Promise yourself that this week you'll mention the podcast to someone who you think would also like it. I'd really appreciate it. 1867 and All That is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and the sound engineering is by Matthew Hayes with the generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that 
1867 and all that.